0: yeah make a great Him. hymn, okay okay I'm trusting that you've already been working on that or worked on that, but what the psalm says about sacrifice, you know just in a bigger picture but, and keep note of that mentally because I think it says some very interesting things about sacrifice. but let, let's just read right now well, while we're trying to get this adjusted let's let's read as much as we can. a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of the earth, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May he come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and it's very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather, my godly ones, to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge, Sillah. Hear, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goat out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that it contains." Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let you let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalm 50 is like Psalm 49 in the standpoint it is more about teaching us than it is praising God directly. It's focused on teaching us. And there's no subject that's more important in Psalm 50 than God himself. God himself occupies center stage from the first verse. But let's say just a little bit about the heading of this psalm. The psalm is a psalm, the text says, of Asaph. That is true for this psalm, 50. It is true for the psalms from 73 through 83. That all those psalms will be described as psalms of Asaph. This may be interesting. Remember, Korah, the Psalms of the sons of Korah are from 42 to 49. And remember, 43 itself did not have a heading. And we stated that 42 and 43 made it one. Then you're going to have a section of Psalms that belong to David. From Psalms 51 to Psalms 71, all except... 66 and 67 are attributed to david then after you have uh these songs of david you're going to have one that's mentioned with solomon in psalm 72 then you're going to go back to the psalms of Asaph, and then the psalms of the sons of Korah, 84 85 to 86 and 87 now, I, I don't know exactly, or excuse me, 87 and 88 are Psalms important. I don't know exactly what that means or the point, but just stating a little bit about the layout, if you wanted to reflect on that, uh, Asaph would have been a temple musician mentioned quite frequently in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 6 and verse uh, 39, 1 Chronicles 15. Verses 17 to 19, 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 5, 1 Chronicles 25, 1, and, and then in 2 Chronicles, as the Bible is talking about the temple uh, restoration of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 30. But well, that's just a little bit about Asaph, a group of temple musicians. Um, Levites who composed uh, some of these psalms. Anything on that heading? Okay, from the very first verse, we said God takes center stage. The mighty one, God, the Lord. Now the mighty one in the New American Standard is a translation of the Hebrew term El. God, a translation of Elohim, and the Lord as Yahweh. El was the chief God of the Canaanites. El was. Elohim was a generic word for God used throughout the ancient Near East. Some have suggested that he is saying El like the God of the Canaanites, and Elohim, a common name used for God, that the Lord is this God. The Lord is this one that other nations and other peoples have called God. The only true mighty one, the only true God, is the God of Israel. The God who has revealed himself to you. The only other place you find this collection of terms... The Mighty One, God, the Lord, is in Joshua 22, 22. In Joshua twenty-two twenty-two, 22 is where Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh have built that altar and the other tribes are coming out to question them about it. And uh, they say, the Mighty One, God the Lord. They use these same titles for God. But one of the things you see about our God from the first verse is that God is sovereign over everything. I know that we're going to, at the end, ask, what does this psalm teach us about Jesus? And you've come to expect that question. But also be thinking about the question, What does it teach us about God himself? And one thing this psalm teaches us is God's sovereignty over all the world. And it's stressed from the first verse. Because he summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The sun rises in the east. It sets in the west. And this is a way of saying all the world... Psalm 113 uh, verse 3 uses that same expression. The rising of the sun to its setting. So God has summoned all the earth. But the God who is God of all the earth. Who summons all the earth. And in verse 4 he summons the heavens and the earth. This God manifests himself in verse 2. Out of Zion. Out of Jerusalem. In a special way. Out of Zion. The perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Remember back in Psalm 48 verse 2. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. That is the way the city of our God is described. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. Here the perfection of beauty. Now other nations felt that way about their chief beauty. Tyre is described in a similar way in Ezekiel 27 and verse 3. But here in this case, Zion. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him. And it's very tempestuous. Around him. As we have studied in Deuteronomy on Sundays and Wednesdays, our God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy four twenty-four. Deuteronomy nine verse 3. Our God is a consuming fire and here as God appears and God is pictured as calling all the earth to stand before Him in judgment. The Bible says fire devours before Him. Uh, The scene in Daniel chapter 7 as it describes the greatness and the majesty of God in Daniel 7. Listen to these words in verses 9 and 10. His throne was ablaze with flame, its wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out before him, thousands upon thousands attended him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him again it's Daniel 7 verses 8 and 9 and here fire devours before him it's very tempestuous around, there's a storm all around him He must be approached with great reverence and great awe in verse 4 he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people it is a court case God is the plaintiff and the judge the heavens and the earth serve as witnesses and his people are the defendant He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, earlier in response to what Sarah said, I told you just keep an eye on what the psalm says about sacrifice. What it says about sacrifice. I hope everyone can see this. That sacrifice will be a key component... In this psalm, in here of fifty-five, we read even some who made a covenant with him by sacrifice. It is a very important element in verse eight, as he says he doesn't rebuke them for their sacrifices, and, and that thought continues uh, throughout as he emphasizes. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Then in verses fourteen and fifteen, he offers talks about offering proper sacrifice. And then he comes back to this idea in verse 23. So we want to keep that in mind. Let that thought be kind of going through our head and see what we can do about putting together his thoughts about that subject. But in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. The Lord himself is judge. God is pictured as judge in verse 4, he's pictured in judge in verse 6, and those are different Hebrew words but the same idea. He is the judge and the heavens declare his righteousness. The heavens declare his glory in Psalm 19:1, but here they declare his righteousness. That idea also appears in Psalm 97 in verse 6. Psalm 97 is one of those psalms that emphasizes God's kingship. And it says, the heavens declare his righteousness and all people have seen his glory. Heaven declares that God is right. God is right. And those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let's go to that expression in verse 5. We mentioned it earlier. Let me just say a little bit about it. This practice is only mentioned specifically a couple of times in Scripture. It's mentioned in Genesis 15, about verses 7 through 21, and and Jeremiah 34, verses 8 through 22. And what happened when parties entered a covenant, is they sometimes cut an animal in two and walked between the pieces of the covenant. And they were taking a curse upon themselves. And they were saying, if I violate this covenant, may the same thing that happened to this animal happen to me. The phrase, to make a covenant, It is literally to cut a covenant. It may have come from that. In um, one place in the ancient Near East, the word to make a covenant was the same as to kill a donkey. Apparently, they killed a donkey, cut it in part, and walked between the pieces of the animal. And, And God is saying, you... Have made a covenant with me. The Bible talks about Israel offering uh, bulls and sacrifices in Exodus 34. Excuse me, Exodus 24. To enter a covenant with God. Maybe this is the specific occasion that is mentioned. What questions do you all have in 1 through 6? Anything? Sarah? It's interesting.
1: Visual of God coming in, in all that chaotic awesomeness, and saying,
0: "Come here," and it's like, I don't think so. yeah, yeah, I yeah. Like that, but
1: yet, that's the command, and that's what
0: to do. It is an it is an awesome thing to appear in this God's presence, and um, God is. We can have, as we've talked about before in this class, I think we did this just a couple weeks ago, there's great joy in God's presence. But there's great reverence too. And those don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can have joy in his presence as one who loves us and who saved us. But we need to have reverence as one who is so, uh, Sarah said, chaotically awesome. Uh, From our perspective... It seems like all the fire and all the storm uh, seems like chaos, but in God, it's perfectly orchestrated to create in us a sense of reverence for Him. And, uh, John?
2: Well, it's like you, you mentioned Exodus 24. It's like Exodus 19 with Israel approaching the mountain and God, you know. Making himself known in the yes, in all of that
0: exactly. I mean, the- and that was intentionally overwhelming to bring the people to a recognition of how awesome God is. As the people say, "Let God, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us, or we will die." It was intentionally overwhelming. So, first six verses, the Lord is calling his people to court. Usually, when you call people to court, you have charges, and you have... It, it, here we going to show what the charge isn't, and then what it is. I was
1: going to say, and, and it also kind of brings to mind that making a covenant is a big deal. And I guess the idea of cutting a donkey in half is... It's still kind of strange. Um, yeah. But I tend to think of, you know, sacrificial animals, all right? But then, like, a donkey is not a sacrifice and had would have had a lot of utility yes. as a beast of burden yeah. and so to decide that we're going to cut a donkey in half so we can't use it anymore Yeah. And we're going to eat
0: it uh, <laughs> uh, I would think so but maybe roast donkey is a delicacy somewhere uh, yeah I don't know about that, that
1: is, it makes it a it seems to be a bigger deal than I had originally
0: I would say that it was not a sacrificial animal in Israel, but in some places it was, in some nations it will, and and this is a thing that's fascinating to me. I'll just 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 for a point go there, is that um, often that archaeologists can go to an ancient altar and they can study what kind of bones are by that altar to determine what kind of sacrifices were offered. In Israel, they didn't offer dogs. In Israel, they did not offer pigs. And those pig bones are always missing from altars. It's just amazing to me all that Israel doesn't listen to. But they listen to that. They, 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 they listen. We're not going to... Oh, that's an unclean animal. And, uh, but some places, that was very common. So what was the clean and unclean animals of Israel may not parallel with all the nations... But in verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, I want you to notice that he begins this section. He begins this section here in verse 7 by referencing Israel by saying... You are my people. You are my people. It closes this by saying, I am your God. And that phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people, is one of the most important phrases in all of Scripture. Uh, It's not used in its fullest form in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8. It's used in a more full form in passages like Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. But but that's a phrase that's used all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It is a very important phrase to describe God's covenant with His people. I am your God, you are my people. And so God is talking to these people who have entered a covenant with him by sacrifice. I am your God and you are my people. I kind of feel like it's this, this, this is kind of like the land of Canaan. It devours its inhabitants and that's the way. But, uh, but Brad, we appreciate you working diligently on that. A long shelf life of those batteries. <laughs> but anyway, in verse eight, he says, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I take I'll not take a young bull out of your house, nor a male goat out of your pole. Let me give you some passages in the old testament. Some of you would know these passages very well, but God is in effect rebuking the people for their sacrifice in some of these passages. Um, for example, Isaiah 1 in verses 10 through 17 you see this Jeremiah uh, 7 verses 21 through 26 um, Hosea 6 verse 6 uh, Micah, Six verses 6 through 8. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And we could list more. Now usually what these passages do is they rebuke Israel because they were bringing their sacrifices. In Isaiah 1, they were wearing out the carpet in the church building. And they were trampling the courts of God's altar. And they were doing this, but their personal life wasn't consistent with it. They were still going out, they were mistreating others, they were cheating others, but but then they were coming and offering their sacrifices. He says that, he says that maybe later in verses 16 through 23. He doesn't say that right here. Right here, that's not his emphasis. It, 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 It ends out very close to that. But, but it's a little different emphasis. Here he says, He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Every beast of the forest is mine. And every cattle upon a thousand hills. We said this psalm emphasizes the sovereignty of God. Every beast of the forest is His. In verse 11, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you the world is mine and all that it contains. You now, I don't suppose that was your concept of God. That you viewed God as hungry and in need of food. But listen listen to this from the Gilgamesh epic, which is the Babylonian story of the flood. After man gets off of the vessel, he offers sacrifices and it says the gods, plural, smelled the savor. The gods smelled the sweet savor. The gods crowded like flies around the sacrificer when at length the great goddess arrived. The picture is the gods are viewed as being hungry and in need of sustenance. And the gods have almost starved to death while man was experiencing the flood because there was no one to offer sacrifices. And now after he gets off of the ark and he offers sacrifices, the gods hover around like flies. If we would be in this building a couple of years ago. That was the concept the people who worshiped here had. That the gods were actually fed by the sacrifices that people give. So you see, it's not completely absent from today's world. And I would say, not in this form, it's not completely absent from the church. You may elaborate on that a little bit later. Matter of fact, I intend to. But right now, I just throw that out. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird, everything that moves. Notice how inclusive God's language is. It is all His. And if God needed something, He wouldn't tell us. He wouldn't tell us. God is absolutely in need of nothing. Paul's sermon in Acts 17 emphasizes this same truth. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Notice he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need us We need him. We need him. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself is the source of all life, all breath, and all things. In him, verse 28 says, we live and move and exist. The same idea is here. We cannot think of God as limited in any of these ways. God is the source of all our blessings. When we talk about fellow believers, I need you, you need me, but I try not to use that language. God needs you, God can use you, God can use you, and God wants you to be saved more desperately than you want that for yourself. But need? If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now, some people take these passages. And they take these passages where they rebuke sacrifice and they rebuke it boldly. Some people take it and say, oh, it is just simply foreshadowing the fact that, that uh, animal sacrifices were going to be done away with in Jesus. Well, I don't think that's the main point. Though, that may be part of the point is Psalm 40 is quoted in Hebrews 10, and that kind of point is made. But it's not the main point. And the main point is not some that take this and say, well, God never wanted animal sacrifices to begin with. I mean, just on the basis of this song, can you say that? Because you have in verse 5, these people have entered a covenant with God by sacrifice. In verse 14, they offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 23 comes back to that same subject. He offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving of thanksgiving. So, so you see in all of these psalms it's not that God is anti-sacrifice but what He is saying is we bring our sacrifice recognizing it is not God in need of us but us in need of Him. And after He tells them the folly of thinking that he is fed or nurtured in some way by their sacrifices, he then says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, I said before, I said before that I'm not so sure this idea is absent from the church. And I'm not saying in these forms because I don't think any of us would think in terms of him being fed by our sacrifices. Because we don't offer these today. But I think it was helpful for me in preaching through Matthew to really think about what Jesus says about prayer. Jesus said... Don't use vain repetition. And he says, God knows your needs before you ask him. Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. Is that anti-prayer or anti-wrong prayer? I don't think so when Jesus prayed all night on at least one occasion and maybe better parts of the night on other. But it is a recognition That we come in prayer not to inform God or not to tell Him something or not because He needs it, but because we do. And that is true for every part of our worship. Every part of our worship. When we come here and we sing with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And study and pray in the same way. Focusing on God. Praising God. That is not for God's good. Because God is no greater if we do it. Nor no less if we do not. That is for our good. And the people who are most adjusted in life. And the people who have it together the best in life are the people who have lost themselves in service and praise of this God. Because it's all designed for us. It's designed to strengthen us. We need it. We need it. It's not he that needs it. But we need it. Now, so God wants us to be thankful in verse 14 to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God wants us to be promise-keeping, to pay our vows. And he says, "Call on me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you, and you shall and you will honor me." Now, sometimes we might think, well, don't call on God just when there's trouble. No, we need to call on God continually, and that prepares us for the day of trouble. It prepares us for the day of difficulty. But where else better can you look in day of trouble? Call upon me. God is glorified and God is honored when we turn to Him in a crisis. When we call on him in trouble. God is honored because we are recognizing, admitting, and acknowledging in such a moment that only he can save. Now the word rescue in verse 15 is not the same word translated deliver in verse 22. But look at verse 22. Contrast verse 22 with verse 15. In verse 22, now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces, and there will be none to deliver. So in one case, God rescues, God delivers, and God is honored. In the other case, for the people who forget God, God tears to pieces, and there is none to rescue or deliver. Which group do you want to be in? Which group should we be in? We want to talk more about those ideas of God and what the psalm tells us about it. But, But do you have a thought right there on any of that? Anything, Sarah? Yes. Cannot, absolutely.
1: Not depending on your riches and your wealth and, and your best friend and you know Absolutely. All of that. And so that that the first that God is the first resort and not the last resort.
0: Yes. That God that, that God is the one that we look to, that God is the one that we seek. Call upon me and day of distress and I will honor you But yes where else I I love the song outside of the line where could we go but to the Lord you know and you probably know which line I'm talking about that I'm not as crazy about Um, living below in this old sinful world kinda hum the next one earlier (laughs) and then uh, but think about some of the lines When you face the chilling hand of death, where could I go but to the Lord? That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. And I've never heard anybody adequately answer that. When I face the chilling hand of death, where could I go but to the Lord? I've never had anybody... How many other worldview give a good answer to that question? And in verse 16, God had told them what the charge wasn't. It. it wasn't that they didn't bring up sacrifices. That's not the problem. But in verse 16, what it is, the wicked God says, "What right do you have to tell them my statutes?" And to take my covenant in your mouth. What right do you have? For you hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. Now it's a beautiful thing to recite scripture. To quote scripture. To appeal to scripture. But what if we quote scripture and appeal to scripture and don't live scripture? And cast his words behind us. That is a dangerous thing. And God is saying to these people who are living like that. What right do you have to do that? Why are you telling my statutes? Why are you taking my covenant in your mouth? And you hate discipline. Now that word discipline is used 50 times in the Old Testament. 30 are in one book. What book would you guess? Proverbs. That's right. 30 of them are in Proverbs. And it's used like three or four times in that first section of Proverbs 1 through 7. You hate discipline. You hate instruction. You cast my words behind. We can't simultaneously quote God's word and cast his word behind us when it comes to trying to make a decision. We've got to live by it. And he says in verse 18, When you see a thief... You're pleased with them. And you associate with adulterers. Now it's interesting to me. He doesn't accuse them of being thieves or being adulterers. But what he does accuse them of is being pleased with them. Being pleased with them. And a passage that comes to my mind is a passage I heard a lot, uh, quoted a lot when I was growing up. Although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Romans 1 and verse 32. They give hearty approval to that. You see a thief and you're pleased with it. You see an adulterer. Are we going to find joy? In a movie, his whole premise is a person leaving his husband or wife and committing adultery with somebody else. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with an adulteress. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander Your own mother's son. So they were guilty of associating with adulterers, of being pleased with thieves, and they do not put a bridle on their tongue, as James tells us pure religion does. Now, in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is a big point. One of the things I think I may have said at the beginning of, of our study... One writer went through all these parallel lines and he traced them and he says in the second line, even though parallel line means that the first line and the second line are going to be basically the same. He said about two-thirds of the time, the second line intensifies in some way. the first line. And let me illustrate that with verse 20. You sit and speak against a brother. You sit and speak against a brother. And in the second line, you slander your own mother's son. In those days... Where polygamy was often practiced, think of David's family, as we mentioned the summer Sunday night. Does being brothers mean that you have the same mother? No. If I speak of anybody's physical brother, it does, it's probably the same for you. But as far as as far as them, not necessarily. And this shows us that they are willing to slander even those nearest. And dearest to them. And so, taking God's statutes to heart and taking His covenant in our mouth needs to affect what we say about each other. God help us. In verse 21, These things you've done, and I kept silent, does thunder blare out of heaven every time we sin? These things you've done, and I kept silent, and you thought that I was just like you. You took my long-suffering and my patience as tolerance and indulgence of your sin. And Romans 2 makes that same kind of argument as it talks about the patience and the long suffering of God. But some misunderstood it. And, and, and Paul writes in Romans 2.4, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, of his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance The very fact that the heavens haven't opened up and God uh, struck us each time we've sinned. That is a statement not of his indulgence to sin, but of his mercy and compassion. Don't ever take it as thinking sin is no big deal to God. I will reprove you and state the case before your eyes. Verse 22, consider this you who forget God or I will tear you to pieces and there will be none to deliver. There are several passages in the Psalms that are similar to that about God tearing us into pieces and... There be none to deliver. We've seen that description. Uh, We see that description among other places in Hosea 5 and verse 14 though. That's one that I have written down. Isaiah 5 verse 14 it applies to God in, in a passage like Psalm 17 verse 12 it applies to the fear that his enemies are like lions who are going to tear him to pieces and he's asking God to deliver. It's one thing to be attacked by the lions and to call on God to deliver it is another thing for God to be the lion and there to be no deliverance from him. But again, it, all, it closes on a note of sacrifice. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. Now, it seemed like we had a lot more to say than I said. And yet, still, it's, it's still Um. What thoughts or questions do you have over the psalm as a whole?
2: So when he addresses the two groups, they're just two different uh, uh, attitudes and behaviors among, though, Israel.
0: It seems like it. And he refers to them in verse 5 as my godly ones, and in verse 16 as the wicked. But yes, they seem to be, they're both, the covenant is mentioned in both of those verses as well. It's mentioned in verse 5, it's mentioned in verse 16. So both of these seem to be references to Israel. And these are, like often the prophets, a division among his people and those, and even those in covenant with him, um, many of them, you know, he calls them his godly ones. Maybe that is in hope of what they should be. Um, and I'm sure some were living righteously, uh, but uh, yes, these these are different groups within his people.
2: And, and I think you said this, but he concludes both uh, addresses with offer these kinds of sacrifices as opposed to what you have been doing.
0: Yes, in both of them he also mentions that offering those right kinds of sacrifices honor him. You notice that in verse 15, I shall rescue you and you will honor me, and in verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. So yes, um, but he closes both of those sections that shows us his intention of re- his intention in rebuking sacrifices is not to say that the sacrifices themselves are meaningless, that he's not poor. Now let's ask first of all, what is this song? What does the psalm teach us? about the nature of God. What does it teach us about who God is? I I think that may be the greatest point of teaching of Psalm 50 is just what it reveals to us about the nature of God. Remember that God is the key character in all of Scripture. Scripture is first and foremost a revelation of Him. And what does this tell us about it? All powerful. Okay, he is all powerful. You see that the description is given of him in verse one. He is God, uh, the mighty God, God the Lord. So he is all powerful. What else?
3: All sufficient.
0: All sufficient. Yes, that would be a term to apply to verses seven through fifteen. All sufficient. We'll abbreviate it right there. All sufficient. He is uh, one that I was thinking of too is some of these same verses demonstrate he is sovereign over all. He calls heaven and earth to be his witnesses. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, they're all under his authority. Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle among a thousand hills. Now, the idea of being all-sufficient is the idea that God does not need us. We need Him. I don't know when the first time, the first time I ever remember talking about this subject, I was 20 years old. And I can remember I had come to a very unbiblical conclusion. Uh, but, but, but why did God create this? in the And I thought, well, He created this because He was one way. No. That is, too, where the doctrine of the Trinity is significant. You have Father, Son, and spirit, dwelling in perfect peace through all eternity. God is not lonely. God did not create us for some to compensate some weakness within himself. God created us for his glory, for our good, though it doesn't work out that way for all people. Judas was told, it would be better for you if you'd never been born. But God creates us for that purpose, for our good, to, for us to share in His love and to experience those blessings. Um, but He is all sufficient. He's in need of nothing. And in Acts 17, is a, a New Testament passage that emphasizes that so well. He is also emphasized a judge of all in verse 4 and in verse 6. He is judge of all. He is a God who is righteous. He is righteous. He is not. This should be verse 6. I believe the heavens declare His righteousness uh, he is righteous. He is not indifferent to immorality. We can't look at God failing to judge every act of immorality immediately and conclude, therefore, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't is not concerned about wrongdoing. God is a God. He's a God who rescues those who call on Him. But God is a God who will tear to pieces those who forget. And like we mentioned, Hosea 5.14 compares him to a lion who will tear to pieces. Now there are more things we could say about God. But those are some pretty important things, and that is a full list—pretty full list. This is the more difficult question: of Psalm 50, how does the Psalm speak of Jesus? I know. Don't get me wrong. All of these things in a way speak of Jesus, don't they? Just like we said, Acts. 17 verses 24 through 28 talks about God being in need of nothing. And it says he's appointed a day in which he shall judge the world by that man whom he has ordained. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. And that man is Christ Jesus. All of these things refer to attributes or qualities of God. And they refer to attributes or qualities of Jesus. In that particular way, all of these attributes of God are revealed to us in Christ. But but how else do you see Jesus being spoken of? Well, looking at verse 14 and 15 and 23,
1: we've got this almost like a formula. Offer
0: a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Honor God. Pay your pay your vows. Walk in the right way. Then when you're in justice, you can call on him and he will rescue and you and receive his salvation. And that's what Jesus did. Yes, yes. And uh, really uh, verses 14 to 15, verse 23, what Sarah referenced, I, I would include in that Section of verses 14 and 15, just all of verses 7 through 15. We were lost. We were in sin. And God doesn't ask us for the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice in His Son. God provides the sacrifice for our salvation. For our redemption. For, to bring us into a right relationship with God. Just like God said, when I was hungry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask you. If I was thirsty, I wouldn't ask you. When God offered the sacrifice for the world, he didn't ask us. And isn't it interesting? God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. If I were thirsty, I wouldn't ask you. And he cries from the cross. I thirst.
3: I was thinking similarly of kind of, again, that reversal of this. Yes. I looked at verse 3, you know, this idea of you know, God come and keep not silence. Jesus kept silent at the end. You know, when he mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. didn't speak. Um, you know, it's very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to good people. He didn't, you know, We saying he could have called 10,000 angels, and he didn't do that. But there, the same point in verse 5, you know, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me, and you can almost see by my sacrifice, that mm-hmm. reversal. It's not your sacrifice that's going to do it. It's going to be by...
0: Almost my sacrifice of Jesus himself. And in a sense, when Jesus is eating the Last Supper and says, This is my body, he is eating that with his godly ones who are in covenant with him by sacrifice. Those are, those are very good. It, it, now, I'm not cutting you off. If you're, you're on a roll, if you still got something to do, uh, I wanted to inject the comparison to Matthew 26. I'm not stopping. Um, so, who knows? That may show up in a podcast soon. I mean, to a podcast near you. Uh, but I saw Sarah and then John as well. In a
1: sense, Jesus... Okay. Uh, so he didn't have
0: to... I mean, they did respond to... to because, you
1: know, the call had already gone out. And then
0: he okay. That's, that's good. That's good. John?
2: Well, this psalm demonstrates all of this uh, lack of trust and devotion. In fact, in some cases, just outright wickedness against God. Uh, just like happened to Jesus... And the psalm ends with a, a call of salvation, just like Jesus leaves the earth and tells his disciples to go and, you know, offer that same message of salvation.
0: That's good. That's good. And as you were talking and comparing it to the end, this hit me, that they forgot God and a sins. He was torn to pieces. He was torn to pieces. For our sin. And for our shortcoming. I will not tell you. You all have got that down well. And you all do help me a lot. On the podcast with that. Um, that's why I do the podcast. After I have the class. And. Um, always be thinking too so I can get more help for free. Uh, Let's well, rethink and do each of these psalms. What does it teach us about the nature of God? Does it teach us about the nature of God? How does it foreshadow Jesus? And uh, But very good thoughts, and I appreciate them very much. Um, as we close, Titus, would you lead us in prayer?
3: Dear God, thank you for this uh, lesson on the psalms. Thank you, Dr. Ken. Read them and learn um, more about your word. Thank you for all of these uh, psalms that we can learn from them. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice. Thank you for all your kindness. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. 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 Now, Lord willing, I'm supposed to be in a meeting next Tuesday night. And then in a couple of weeks, we will do psalm. Uh, 51, which that is a, a popular psalm and uh, one that can teach us teach us much. And Brad, I think, has a song for us. Do you, if you want this, you can turn it back on for me. I um, let the recorder going as well. There's two,
3: there's two different uh, pages here, so.
1: Again,
2: not a very
3: lengthy psalm, but uh, it still takes seventeen verses to sing it. So, um, but again, you know, it, it still impresses upon me that uh, they sang It was still a Tune and it was something that was memorable, so um, I like to remember that. Uh, the lines on the page are just uh, reference points for you to jump around and uh, see where we're at on the page. Uh, the first one, Psalm fifty-one through six, to the tune of "The Lord My Shepherd Is," so it has that uh, repeat bases and tenors. Um, I think they work pretty good. Uh, I will go so fast that you can't.
4: surely come So...